Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The United States' approach to Taiwan has long been defined as strategic ambiguity. While it has never directly challenged China's claim over the island, the US has also never shied away from selling weapons to Tapai or making use of the China Strait for naval exercises. The Trump administration has arguably provided more tangible and symbolic support for Taiwan than any other US presidency. But how much of that is related to China? Is Taiwan just a pawn in a diplomatic chess game? And what does the United States prioritize in the relationship? Here to discuss this with me is Natasha Kassam, a research fellow in the Diplomacy and Public Opinion program at the Lowy Institute. Thank you for joining me, Tash. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. So if you could start with our podcast, because I don't want to think that anyone has assumed knowledge here by giving us a bit of a distilled version of the status of Taiwan and how it is viewed by both the United States and China. Well, there's no way to do this without getting into some history. And so if you could accept my apologies, two tops, one for the very abridged amateur history lesson, and also for the very complicated story that I'll try to tell you in a couple of minutes. We should start with the Indigenous people of Taiwan because they are there represented by government and often overlooked by anyone who claims that Taiwan is ultimately Chinese as a society. Fast forward a thousand years or so, and you have small numbers of Chinese migrants arriving from Fujian province in the 15th century, and then Dutch, Spanish, and Chinese colonies. Taiwan was first annexed by China in the late 17th century. And I realize here in Australia that that is ancient history for our standards. But I think it's important to mention that this is relatively recent in terms of a Chinese empire. For example, this is 1,900 years later than when Hong Kong became Chinese. So Taiwan was then turned to Japan as a concession in 1895, and it remained a Japanese territory until the end of World War II and Japan's defeat. It was promised in that process to the Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek. So you then have a couple of years of incredible dislocation in Taiwanese history. Japan leaves, the Chinese nationalists arrive, and Taiwan is treated as a basing operation for the civil war between the nationalists and the communists. The nationalists are brutal and authoritarian. They suppress Taiwanese independence movements with incredible violence. And then the mainland falls to Mao and the communists and the People's Republic of China that we know today is established. This is only two years after that brutal suppression of an uprising in Taiwan. And you have two million of these Chinese nationalists fleeing to Taiwan. And they arrive expecting to be in charge of those people. So they bring with them a very specific version of a Chinese identity. They expect the Taiwanese to speak Mandarin and put themselves in the service of reversing the successes of the communists on what they saw as the mainland of China. Remember that these Taiwanese men, for the most part, were a few years ago just fighting in Japanese uniforms, just to explain how kind of strange and dislocating this period must have been. And this brings us to the United States. I went as fast as I could, but that is the abridged history. Uh, where at the beginning of the Cold War, the United States is very concerned about the region falling to the communists as mainland China already has. The United States continues at that time to see the Republic of China on Taiwan as the real China and that communist China would be returned to it. 
And this fiction is sustained for a remarkably long period of time. Taiwan has a mutual defense treaty with the United States. It holds a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. And all of this essentially buys Taiwan time. It buys them time to ensure that the PRC doesn't push across the Taiwan Strait and finish the job as they would consider it. Gives them time to develop their economy, quite remarkably actually. And even though uh, the United States considers Taiwan at that period to be free China, I think it's important to note that it was at that moment still an authoritarian one-party state with no freedom of speech and free press. But around the world, there are countries that are starting to recognize Beijing. And in the 1970s, the year before Nixon goes to China, Taipei loses its Security Council seat to Beijing. Nixon recognizes Beijing, Taiwan is abandoned, and this is seen as a betrayal and the United States essentially choosing a communist state during the Cold War over a military ally. But what uh, some excellent historians and analysts have said, uh, for example, Shelley Rigger, is that this actually opens the door for Taiwan. It releases them from having to pretend to be China anymore. We start to see a reimagining of Taiwanese ident identity, Taiwanese independence, and it does eventually help the system transition to the full democracy that Taiwan is today. And then we have this very strange moment in US-Taiwan relations where I don't think anyone could have seen this happening. It seemed that you know, uh, Taiwan's fate was sealed with Nixon going to China and abrogating that mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. But then Nixon is under fire for impeachment, he resigns, and at the same time Mao dies. And Taiwan essentially doesn't miss this opportunity. It works behind the scenes to secure support in US Congress, and it finds a way for this abandonment by the United States and many Western liberal democracies to not be total. And the Taiwan Relations Act is born, signed in 1979, including by then Senator Joe Biden, but more on that later. And this is the status that continues today. Most countries diplomatically recognize Beijing, not Taipei. There are 15 countries still that recognize Taipei, but the United States still upholds the Taiwan Relations Act, which means it has diplomatic representation in Taiwan, and Taiwan has diplomatic representation in the United States, unofficially, but the, the offices are there and the people are there. Um, it sells Taiwan arms to defend itself. And even though China continues to consider Taiwan as a part of its territory, the United States is committed to preserving the status quo on some level. The policy is something we would describe as strategic ambiguity. So the United States no longer has that obligation to defend Taiwan, but it is obligated to furnish it with arms and it does other things like supporting its inclusion in international forum as an observer. So it's quite a convoluted history, but that is where we fall today. The United States doesn't recognize Taipei as a capital of a country, but it does in all other ways treat it as a de facto independent country. The way you describe it, though, I can imagine people in Taiwan essentially holding their breath and, and waiting to see what happens. You, you said that many years ago that this is essentially a paused state that they're in almost like that there's going to be more development, but they don't know which way it's going to go. And it's not up to them. Is that about right? It is about right. It's really wrong and a bit unfair, I think, that a country of 24 million people can't determine mm. its own status, particularly now that Taiwan is a democracy with its own military, its own legislature. 
you know, with free press and all of these things. But yeah, holding their breath is a good way to describe it. I think that most Taiwanese, if you ask them, you know, in terms of public opinion, what they want, the vast majority, nine in 10, do not want to be a part of China, but the vast majority don't want war either. And, you know, when they're put in that position, I, I think it's really hard to know what's going to happen. And given this moment, as you said at the outset, with what is happening in great power competition, mm. I think the people of Taiwan are very, very scared. So uh, let's turn now to their interactions with the United States. And perhaps this is best encapsulated by the, the recent appointment of Xiaoping Kim, uh, who's been named the new Taiwan envoy to the United States. And you said that this isn't officially an ambassador role, those sort of interactions. They don't have an embassy, but it's de facto almost. So what do you think she hopes to achieve because she's been touted as a very good choice because she's had an international upbringing. So I don't know what difference that makes. But anyway, and do you think that there's anything realistically that Taiwan can lobby for in the United States to improve relations? Absolutely. So I do think Xiaobi Kim is an excellent choice for a representative, uh, in part because of her really interesting background as a progressive voice in Taiwan politics. Um, she, for example, supported the Sunflower Student Movement in 2014. I think she's been proposing legislation on marriage equality in Taiwan since 2006, which that legislation has now been passed. And she was born in Japan, I think grew up in Taiwan and was educated in the United States. And given that complicated history I was just explaining, it really, you know, it does represent a lot of the different elements of Taiwanese identity. I think she will, particularly between now and the US election, be out there talking to every Congress person she can. Uh, she'll be very keen to secure some of the gains that have been made under President Trump. There's been quite a lot of symbolic and real support that has come out of the United States towards Taiwan. And she'll want to make sure that none of that is in jeopardy as we get into what will undoubtedly be a divisive and for many people painful political campaign. I think she'll also be very conscious of ensuring that Taiwan is not being thrown around like a political football and you alluded to this in your opening remarks, the problem that Taiwan could end up being a pawn in great power competition. So Ambassador Kim will be looking very much to uh, secure those gains, perhaps even push for new policy. Some of the ideas that are being put out there include free trade agreements, exemptions on tariffs, exemptions for TSMC in terms of a large microchip company in Taiwan, the largest in the world, in fact, that is about to lose a significant proportion of its business because it's unable to continue selling to Huawei. So there'll be things she can advocate for, but I would assume in the current political environment, she'll just be looking to make sure that some of these valuable gains are not lost. What are you inferring to by valuable gains? And uh, are these things that have come about directly because of Trump's views on Taiwan and China more so? Yeah, it's an interesting question. If you look at the ledger of the Trump administration on Taiwan, it actually looks pretty good in the scheme of things. You have major sales of military equipment. You have an uptick in transits through the Taiwan Strait. By contrast, you know, before President Trump, you had under Bush and Obama, arms um, sales were frozen to Taiwan. That's clearly changed. 
Uh, you've also seen in March this year, President Trump signed the Taipei Act, which intended to assist Taiwan in retaining its few diplomatic partners and also calls on the United States to assist Taiwan with its participation in international organisations. It was a year ago that the Congress also passed a Taiwan Travel Act, ensuring that high-level delegations uh, continue to travel from the United States, Defence and State Departments, to Taiwan. We've seen uh, President Tsai made a significant transit through US territory last year, and the vice president-elect prior to the inauguration also traveled to the United States. So a lot of these things, I think, in substance, you would say that President Trump has been very good to Taiwan. The thing that I worry about is that this is not so much support for Taiwan, but it is actually the instinct to be hard on China mm. and the fact that the center of gravity of China policy in Washington has very much shifted. So at the same time as seeing all of these changes, you can see that President Trump has variously described Xi Jinping as a good friend, you know, the same person that threatens to annex Taiwan on a regular basis. They've seen Trump take a wrecking ball to partners and allies while showering praise upon strongman leaders. Taiwan is subject to the steel and aluminium tariffs, for example, from the United States. And I already mentioned the pressure on Taiwanese technology companies. It's a mixed record. And I think that there are questions that need to be asked as to why all of this support for Taiwan is kind of coming out of the White House. And is it really based on preserving Taiwan's freedoms or is it more just a very big stick with which to hit China? Mm -hmm. So if they succeed in strengthening ties with the United States, do they risk further tensions with mainland China and becoming less of a trustworthy partner for America? This is coming back to being a, a bit of a pawn in the game here. Is it worth the risk to anger a potential enemy so close to them? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that we do need to take a second to think about whose behaviour is angering whom, right? Again, I start from the starting point that Taiwan is a liberal democracy of 24 million people and they should be able to make decisions about their own future. Mm. That's not the case in reality. In reality, every decision is constrained by whether it will anger China, whether this will be the thing that crosses the red line, the red line that seems to always be moving. I think it is a real problem and it's a problem that I think Ambassador Xiao will be faced with where in some ways Washington treats Taiwan as a conduit to frustrate Beijing and there are already so many within China in the party state that they think the United States is intent on promoting Taiwanese independence. I think as I've said the United States is more interested in securing the status quo, which is de facto independence, but they know that for Taiwan to declare independence, it would cause most likely a military conflict. Taiwanese leaders know that on both sides. And so then I worry that the United States will push things a little too far and abandon Taiwan to deal with the consequences. On the one hand, you know, the United States is doing all these things and standing up to China or you know, pushing back on bullying, however you want to frame it. But then they're also less willing to be fighting wars around the world, less willing to deploy troops overseas, understandably. So I think the issue here is that China is pushed too far where it feels that it has no choice but to do something and Taiwan is left to deal with the consequences. So China has imposed a national security law on Hong Kong and it is now um, enforcing restrictions on protests 
and leading Donald Trump to remove the island's special status with an executive order. How does Taiwan view these developments and could it perhaps be a, a signal of things to come? Yeah, I think Taiwan watches Hong Kong very closely, of course, and for one reason is that one country, two systems, which previously existed in Hong Kong, that system was designed with Taiwan in mind mm. for Deng Xiaoping. So if there had ever been a way for a peaceful unification between China and Taiwan to happen, it would have been under a system that looked something like what Hong Kong used to be, that one country, two systems. And even if you don't believe that Hong Kong as we know it is dead, there are, of course, a few today that argue that one country, two systems still exists. So what you've seen is this growing solidarity between the Hong Kong democracy movement and many in Taiwan. And this is relatively new, I would argue. So in 2014, you had the Occupy Central movements in Hong Kong and the Sunflower movements in Taipei. You would imagine there'd be linkages between the two and there were some, but actually it wasn't a very coordinated or particularly close relationship. It's a completely different story today. I was in Taiwan for the election in January. President Tsai on election night spoke to the Hong Kongers in the crowd. And after her speech, the streets were filled with Hong Kong democracy supporters and Taiwanese electors who were together marching and holding up five fingers in the air for the five demands of the Hong Kong democracy movement. We can see already the national security law is having a really significant impact on Taiwan itself and on Taiwan in Hong Kong. So we've seen reports now that Taiwanese officials at their de facto consulate in Hong Kong have been told they can only renew their visas if they sign a document that pledges there's only one China. Mm. Taiwan is also trying to provide pathways for Hong Kong refugees to stay, or at least they're saying that they will. But this is incredibly fraught, of course, for Taiwan. There was a survey published recently by Foreign Policy that said around 50% of Hong Kongers were considering leaving and Taiwan was their first choice for where to go. And then there's the question as to whether these connections between the civil society groups, are they illegal under the law? Are they supporting succession or subversion of some kind? How will Taiwan be punished if it does provide safe haven to fleeing protesters? We've already seen China's ambassador to the United Kingdom saying that the United Kingdom is skating on thin ice for suspending its extradition treaty with Hong Kong and accepting refugees from Hong Kong. And anything that a country like the United Kingdom is targeted with will always be worse when it comes to Taiwan. So they're watching it carefully. And I think it's undoubtedly going to have a chilling effect on some of those links between the democracy movement. Mm. Has there been a reaction to um, how the US has reacted to Hong Kong and people in Taiwan taking notice of this and thinking, right, this is maybe some of the support that we could expect if we ever have similar troubles? Look, I won't speak for the Taiwan people, but my instinct is it's the opposite. I think it's actually seeing the United States revoke Hong Kong's special status, which I think for many is seen as too little too late when it comes to Hong Kong. And the idea is of something like that, it's kind of a nuclear option, right? You can only do it once. What effect will it have? Does China really care? So for many Taiwanese, I think it's actually a worrying sign that the political will doesn't exist in other countries to actually push back on China when it comes to these core ambitions of which, of course, Hong Kong is one of them and as is Taiwan. 
So my impression is that it would have the opposite reaction. Mm. So my final question before I dip into the Q&A provided by the audience is, of course, the inevitable question. So earlier this year, when President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan was re-elected, Biden was the first Democrat presidential candidate who extended congratulations to her and urged the strengthening of US-Taiwan ties. So do you believe Taiwan has a preference when it comes to the outcome of the upcoming United States presidential election, uh, given Biden's quite long history of interaction with the island? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it would be hard for Taiwanese officials and leaders to not think that Joe Biden would be a better president for them. Of course, as I said, there's been many ways in which President Trump has offered concrete material support to Taiwan. But you can see that Biden is running on democracy, promotion, talking about bringing allies and partners back into the fold. I think that this is good news for Taiwan. I think what they want is Japan and South Korea feeling very secure in their relationship with the United States. Even I think that would extend to countries like Australia. They also know that Joe Biden has uh, strong views about Taiwan, of course, as you say. And I think whether or not you believe that the United States will go to war to defend Taiwan, if that's necessary, I think it's very hard to imagine somebody like Joe Biden being the president that presides over the loss of Taiwan. Mm. And for that reason, I think that there would be many in Taiwan who would see his uh, predictability and his kind of old school hand in terms of foreign policy as being in their favor. When I was reading up about this today, I, I think I told you I found a, a 20 year old opinion piece written by him in the Washington Post, uh, essentially criticizing George W. Bush's approach to Taiwan. So it's something that's been on his mind for a while by the sounds of it. Absolutely. And I mean, that piece was really interesting where Bush said, of course, we would defend Taiwan if Bush came to shove and then was criticised for saying that so flatly. And what Biden said was not that he disagreed with the position, but that that was a matter for the American people and the American Congress and a president himself could not make those decisions. Again, I think this would be, well, maybe it would be mixed news for the Taiwanese officials because you have... I think possibly the most pro-Taiwan Congress that we've seen since the 50s or the 60s, or at least since the Taiwan Relations Act was signed. Uh, the contrast is that when you ask the American public whether military should be deployed to defend Taiwan, um, the majority say no, but the majority do not want to deploy the military anywhere. So that's not a Taiwan-specific concern. So if Biden wins the election, uh, he gets a call from Taiwan. Do you believe that he will be answering the phone? There's precedence now. <laughs> There's precedent now. So as you know, but for our listeners, President Trump uh, had a phone call with President Tsai before inauguration. And I think that's an important point. Uh, there aren't generally official exchanges between the two presidents. But given he was not yet inaugurated, he was a he was anybody, essentially, uh, he accepted this call. And I think there was much excitement in Taiwan when that happened. They thought that maybe this meant there was going to be more space created for Taiwan by the new US president. But it actually very quickly backfired because when President Trump was criticized for this phone call, he blamed 
the call on President Tsai, which fed right into China's strategy. Mm. And he also dragged Taiwan into all of these issues they hadn't previously been involved with, such as the South China Sea and trade disputes. So it really didn't work out very well for Taiwan in that sense. So whether or not they would look to replicate a phone call of that nature is an open question. But if the phone rang, my instinct is that Biden would answer. Like I said, he's running on the promotion of democracy. He has been supportive of Taiwan in the past. And he may also see it as, you know, the precedent's been set. And so maybe that's okay. I would say, you know, just to argue against myself for a second, he might not do it because Trump did do it. And so he may see himself as needing to distance from that position. And it also could be seen, I think, for a new American president as a relatively low cost way of signaling to Beijing that you're willing to take some of the heat out of the relationship. All right. So we'll, we'll turn to a couple of audience questions now. And uh, oh, you're being asked some <laughs> to solve some big problems here, Tash, if you're ready for this. Um, so <laughs> we'll, we'll go to, uh, to Connor King first. Hi, Connor. Uh, yes. Hi. Thank you for confirming the history at the beginning there. That was what I understood. And where you ended with that call with President Trump, or to be president anyway, in Australia, people reacted fairly negatively to that because we have a tendency to want to not like what Trump does. And for once, I thought he did something possibly useful. But do you think it would be helpful if we made stronger reference to Taiwan as a like a colony or a one-time colony to just emphasise and I think possibly help educate people here of the relative shortness of real Chinese rule in that island? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the idea of Taiwan as a colony is an interesting one. Perhaps there would be some kind of solidarity between Australians and others on the issue. What I do think doesn't get enough attention is that history that I outlined as quickly as I could. You know, the proportion of Taiwan's history in which it's been Chinese is fairly minor in the grand scheme of things. And that has been airbrushed in many ways because China says loudly and regularly that Taiwan is a part of their territory. The one China principle is the same as many countries one China policies. And it also tries to give it an air of inevitability, right? They talk about reunification, about Taiwan coming back home, when in fact Taiwan was never a part of the People's Republic of China. As I said, it's you know, been in and out over the years of different versions, but not this version of China. And if we had a bit more understanding of that, rather than seeing this as some irresistible trend of history, as Xi Jinping might call it, I do think that would benefit Taiwan. And Taiwan already tries pretty hard to educate the world about it. And uh, its recent success with coronavirus has been no different. You know, we're hearing and talking more about Taiwan than ever before, in my experience. So I, I don't know if it's the kind of colony part specifically, but I do agree that learning more about its history and understanding all of that complexity would benefit Taiwan's cause. All right. Thanks for that question. Uh, we'll now go to Jai Ruan. Oh, I just want to ask you, uh, I just, uh, if the United States recognize Taiwan is an independent country and uh, established the democratic uh, diplomatic relation with Taiwan, is benefit the CCP regime or is bad for the CCP regime? In my opinion, if the 
the United States recognize Taiwan is a country, it benefits the CCP because the CCP will incite the nationalism to consolidate their power, their regime. Because most of the Chinese people, they don't like the Taiwan to be independent from China. Yeah, interesting factoid on this. Um, actually, at the time that the United States switched its diplomatic recognition, George W. Bush was our United States representative, and uh, they actually looked into the idea of dual recognition, whether both Beijing and Taipei could have seats at the table. It was actually Chiang Kai-shek on the Republic of China side that said they weren't willing for that to happen, and they walked away. Mm. Having said all of that, uh, I don't think it would be a good idea for the United States to recognize Taiwan today. I'll explain why. You know, I, as much as anybody, as I've said, think that Taiwan deserves to be a normal country uh, like any other country. But I'm going to draw an almost arbitrary distinction here between the kinds of behaviours that I think create more space for Taiwan and help Taiwan and the behaviours that make China feel like it is running out of time and under pressure to act. So the things that create more space for Taiwan and take that air of inevitability out of the annexing of Taiwan would be things like the Taipei Act, which advocate for Taiwan's representation at international forums. It would be to have more free trade agreements with more countries. Um, those are the things that I see as, or even having maybe even defense exercises, I would see those as being helpful. The things that I would see as making China feels like, feel like it's running out of time and it is pressured to act, would be attempting to recognize Taipei. It would be um, the United States changing that long-standing uh, position of strategic ambiguity and saying that they were definitely going to bring Taiwan into their security umbrella. Those are the things that I think would lead to less stability, not more, unfortunately. All right. Uh, so the next question that we'll take is um, from Hunter Marston, if you want to ask a question to Tash. Great. Thanks, Matt. And thank you, Natasha, for the brilliant overview here. My question actually flows nicely from your uh, closing statements there. I'm wondering what the prospects would be, uh, in your opinion, uh, for a U.S.-Taiwan free trade deal under the next administration. Um, this is one recommendation that I made in a report with uh, Bonnie Glaser and Matthew Funiel. So curious to hear if you think it's actually feasible. Thanks. Thanks so much, Hunter, for joining us. And uh, I read that report, and thank you for that. I feel like you have a better answer than I do, but this is what I think. I think free trade agreements with Taiwan for the United States, Australia, and many other countries make a lot of sense economically. You know, we all know the role that Taiwan plays in global supply chains. It is Australia's 10th largest trading partner. I think it's the 11th for the United States. Uh, so there are many, many reasons that uh, these free trade agreements should happen. To date, they haven't happened because of Beijing's wrath, essentially. What I would say about that is we are seeing increasingly countries around the world willing to do things that anger Beijing. In the past, its economic weight and uh, fear of economic coercion has avoided a lot of countries from taking more forward-leaning positions on Taiwan. And I do th think that this is something that Will, has already started to shift and will shift further. There are definitely more countries willing to take risks of this nature. The United States is perhaps not 
negotiating new free trade agreements right now, or at least is, you know, not necessarily as open to free trade and globalization as it has been in the past. But in the hope that this pandemic is over at some point, and if particularly we have a democratic president in the United States next time around, I do think that a free trade agreement with Taiwan would be on the table. I'll just quickly say one more thing, which is that when the United States left the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think Taiwan's hopes of joining that agreement also uh, dissipated. If that position changed, that would be another way in which to bring Taiwan into um, broader free trade agreement in the region and something that I think Taiwan would really want. All right. So thanks for that question, Hunter. I thought to finish off just as a last one here, we'll take a, a question from Zara Kimpton. Thank you. Tash, if China does take Taiwan, do you think many Taiwanese would try to leave? And would the Chinese let them do that? Also, do you think they would be welcome in countries like the US and Australia and, and possibly Europe? In short, thank you for that question. My answer is yes and yes. I think one of the problems that where we talk about the idea of China taking Taiwan is it's only the beginning, not the end of the cross-straits crisis. As I said earlier, nine in 10 Taiwanese do not want to be a part of China. Taiwan has you know, a very developed economy and a middle class, a very sizable middle class. A lot of these people have the resources and ability to leave if they want to. I will say many of them don't want to and shouldn't have to leave their homes, but the refugees, the diaspora, the flow-on effects of any attempt to occupy Taiwan, as well as, I mean, I think there would be fighting in the streets. It would be, I think, very, very dramatic and a protracted, messy conflict that would go on for weeks, months, years even. So I don't think it's as simple as, you know, China has the second largest military in the world, it invades Taiwan and nobody comes to Taiwan's rescue. I think there's no version of the story that looks like that. And if in fact something like that did happen, you would have uprisings in the streets, you would have Taiwanese fleeing around the world. And because in many ways, there are many Taiwanese that are highly skilled, they have economic resources. I think they would be welcomed in many countries. Right. Uh, thanks for that question, Zara. And uh, thanks very much for your time today, Tash. And uh, we'll leave it on that note. And uh, unfortunately, uh, wait to see what develops in Taiwan. It's the way you end up talking about Taiwan, no matter what you're doing. But yes, we all live in hope. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. And thank you to everybody who tuned in. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave us a review. They are, as always, very appreciated. You can follow Natasha Kassam on Twitter. She is at Natasha S. Kassam. And you can follow La Trobe Asia. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.